Larry Diamond is a competitive guy who has been successful in his career based on doing things he was told weren't possible. As CEO of Metesco, he's redefining primary care and prevention. Metesco uses the Patient Activation Measure, or PAM, to help providers determine how to work with their individual patients. The nurse practitioners work face-to-face -face with patients, and they also conduct telehealth visits. They see their patients multiple times a year and have much more interaction than the typical primary care doctor. Metesco is building out facilities in Minnesota, including near the Minnesota Vikings Training Center, and then moving on to Colorado, Arizona, and Florida. I'm David Williams, host of the Health Biz Podcast and president of Health Business Group, a strategy consulting firm that helps businesses like Metesco develop robust growth plans. Reach out to me, dwilliams at healthbusinessgroup.com, if you'd like to discuss strategy for your organization. And meanwhile, do me a favor and subscribe to the Health Biz Podcast. Well, Larry Diamond, CEO of Metesco, welcome to the Health Biz Podcast. Good afternoon. We're going to talk about uh, Metesco uh, in a minute, but I want to ask you a little bit about your your background. What was your upbringing like? What was your and do you have any childhood influences that uh, that stayed with you? Sure. You know, when you ask this question, it made me have to sit back and think because it's a while since I've I've done uh, done that. Yeah. Um, you know, my my upbringing. You know, I like to think it's pretty traditional in America. Uh, you know, my family was uh, pretty, uh, I guess, a uh, little above blue collar, but um, slowly my parents uh, moved ahead and climbed the uh, climbed the economic ladder. Um, I moved a lot growing up, so, you know, had to get used to restarting. I started in Maryland, out to California, back to New York, then to Virginia, then um, back to New York City, then uh, Minnesota, Massachusetts, and then back to Minnesota. So had a lot of moving, which requires you to uh, have to be uh, good at making friends and jumping in. Uh, you can't be very passive. So I think that was probably pretty impactful in my life. No, that sounds good. And it sounds like uh, what I'm detecting there based on my geography there is our Minnesota sort of in the middle and maybe you gravitated toward that eventually. Exactly. That's good. And then what did you uh, what did you study? Uh, for school-wise, uh, undergraduate, I actually did business, and um, uh, which is marketing and finance, and uh, spent a couple years working on Wall Street. My father had worked on Wall Street, so I think that was a big influence in my life, yeah. that exposure to business and how it works. And then um, in graduate school, I went back for my MBA. That's good. So I saw uh, Merrill Lynch and then some, um, some more healthcare-oriented things, including uh, United Healthcare and American telecare, what, what were those experiences like? Um, you know, for, for me, you know, one of the things that's important in my career is, is, is that I've always been told that I can't do things. And so for me, whether it was at Merrill Lynch or with United or American telecare, it's that challenge to succeed is something that has been omnipresent in my life to prove people that I can do the things that they say you can't. So at Merrill Lynch, you know, I landed Pepsi and USA Network as clients for the company. Yeah. Um, at United Healthcare, uh, invented tier co-payments and, uh, you know, built Medicare uh, business from scratch to uh, over uh, 500,000 lives in two years. Um, and at American Telecare, we invented a stethoscope that actually went up on the space shuttle. 
Um, it was used by the uh, Veterans, uh, Veterans Affairs. It was used across Canada to provide medical care remotely early, early 20 years ago in telehealth. So, Larry, was it like an internal voice telling you you couldn't do something or did you always need like a, a boss or someone to, to tell you that? Because maybe I'll tell you you can't do a podcast and then it'll, it'll really it'll really sing. Yeah, you know, I think it's really it's that sports influence. Yeah. You know, being competitive in sports growing up. And so, you know, we, we, when you're in business, people challenge you to do things and maybe there's some doubt as to whether you can execute on it. But it's um, it's once you get that initial uh, belief in yourself and the ability to to be successful, you figure out how to get the job done. And uh, I think it's that drive, you know, coming from a very early age, really from sports. You want to win. And uh, that desire to win is something that has driven throughout my life. So let's talk about Metesco. First of all, it's a name that's fairly pronounceable, but it's not a word that I'm familiar with. What does it mean and what does the company do? Uh, excellent question. You know, when we started out this, I've been in healthcare for 27 years. And the one thing in healthcare that you, you struggle with is how do you make progress every day? There's so much regulation. There's so many perverse incentives in healthcare. And really, you know, change is inevitable, but progress is optional. So when we were looking for something, we discovered that fact that Matesco actually means progress in Latin. Nice. And so we adopted that as a name because we're looking to do that every day is just make a little bit progress towards making healthcare better in America. So uh, maybe it says something that uh, when you said before that progress is optional and the name Metesco wasn't taken. Nobody was trying to do that in healthcare until you picked it up. Well, I, I'm not going to say that about everybody, but uh, <laughs> it is definitely something we, we pride ourselves on. Now, why is the focus on primary care and prevention? Why did you choose to dig in there? You know, being in healthcare for so many years now, um, one thing you've seen is we've seen a lot of innovative technology come out, whether it's a pharmaceutical product or a device, but invariably it actually raises the cost of care. You look at the, you know, the hep C virus treatment, it's $100,000 a year. And yes, if you were to provide services to an individual over their lifetime, yeah, it would cost 100000 But now I have to pay that all up front. Yeah. And that's bankrupting cities and Medicaid. Um, so the, the fact is, is primary care is really the only thing we can do from a prevention perspective to change how much healthcare we're using in America. You can treat a lot of things and it's very expensive, but if you prevent them from ever getting sick or you stop the disease from progressing, you never have to address that issue or those costs. And so delays in care are one of the big cost drivers in America, but primary care is not set up today, historically, to respond in a timely manner to be able to focus on prevention. And that really is the opportunity that exists today. Now, I think you also have an emphasis on patient activation. So it's not just sort of reorganizing the healthcare system. And I think you use the PAM measure. Can you talk about what that is and why it's important for Metesco? Absolutely. Patient activation measure is uh, Dr. Hibbert's work out of the University of Oregon. And it's fascinating because it actually defines the 95% confidence level, whether an individual is a good user of healthcare or not. And as a result of that, it tells the clinician, if they're not a good user of healthcare, exactly how to work with them in order to get them to begin to take more of an activated participation in their care. And so what really they discovered is, is that we as a society have been over talking 
about 50% of patients out there. And they're overwhelmed and we, we give them lots and lots of things to do and they do none because it's greater than their ability. So using activation, our clinicians are actually able to parse the actions that we want them to take in this focus on prevention, break into small little bits so they can actually be successful, which very often they haven't been successful managing their own health. One of the things that um, I've never been completely clear about with this PAM uh, measure is how much it's just kind of an observation to say, you know, this is what the patient is like, like whether they're short or tall, and therefore you need to accommodate them, uh, versus how much to say somebody has low activation, you're going to try to move them up this, the scale. Is it a bit of both or is it more a matter of, okay, this is where the patient is and that's how you need to relate to them? Um, it, it very much is your inner, the inner self of the person and, and, and what makes them up. Um, it's a psychographic tool. And so it, the way you understand a person, you ask them uh, 10 questions on a reverse Likert scale. So from strongly disagree to strongly agree. And it's really surprising that it un uncovers this. The interesting thing is it does not correlate whatsoever to age, income, gender, ethnicity, any of the traditional metrics on how we've labeled people in society. There's no, almost no correlation whatsoever there. You can have a Harvard-trained uh, business leader who's the lowest level of activation, and you can have a person who's homeless on Medicaid, and they can be the highest level of activation. Well, I think that's one thing that makes it an interesting measure, that it's, it's useful by itself and it's not correlated with, you know, with other things. There's a, there's a lot of correlation of, you know, of, of income, um, you know, with health status, for example. So zip code, but uh, PAM is, is something that's different and independent. It's nice to be able to work that into what you're doing. So, you know, one of the interesting things is one of the common popular tools is social determinants of health which really gets into all the labels we were just talking about. And they're important to overcome those barriers uh, to provide immediate care. But the reality is you're not going to change someone's literacy, their income, their ethnicity. Patient activation measure can be trained if you meet them at their level and teach them how little by little to manage their disease, their life, and teach them how to take control. And the neat thing about being a validated tool is for every one point change in the 100 point scale, it actually correlates to a cost reduction for society and what it's going to cost to provide care to them. Your model, as I understand it, relies heavily on nurse practitioners. Is that correct? And you know why that focus, if so? Yeah, I mean, we, we chose to go with nurse practitioners for several issues. Number one, we're just not seeing physicians want when they graduate from medical school wanting to go into the practice of primary care. One of the reasons we have a 25,000 provider shortage of primary care providers in America, and we're just not graduating enough physicians to just solve that problem. So nurse practitioners are the next logical step. With that, what's really neat is they have the full scope and authority of practice as a physician, and their training tends to be that they start out as an LPN or RN, they work with patients, they continue to go back to school to secure this, which has now become a PhD in nursing. So it's a very high level of education, but they're getting that consistent pa patient interaction along the way. So when they get into the practice of primary care, they already know how to work with patients. 
Additionally, the scope of education is very broad and it tends to be longitudinal, where often medicine in education is one and done. Nursing is very often, and the way it's structured, is to work with a patient over time to address their issues and solve them over time. And given the number of chronic illnesses that we have in our society, it is ideally situated to address those types of problems. So you've explained, you know, the focus on primary care and prevention, patient activation, uh, the use of nurse practitioners. So how do I think about uh, Metesco in the overall kind of market map of primary care and, and wellness? Where, where, where do you fit in? Great question. You know, so I think we have to recognize that primary care has become a consumer product with the size of deductibles and coinsurance the consumer is now making the primary choice of where to go. And historically, medical care has been organized for the convenience of the physician. We're organizing care for the convenience of the consumer. We're putting them really close to where they live. High concentration residential settings. Our clinics today are sitting inside of the retail strip of high-rise apartment buildings. It's actually part of their living environment the landlords actually view it as an amenity to their communities, just like the swimming pool or the gym. It communicates a different message about how that landlord wants their residents to be considered. Easy access. The other thing that's important is you think about France, which has some of the best population health statistics. They've organized their primary care right where people live. And so we're leveraging that. We want to make care very accessible, very convenient. And it's one of the reasons we have integrated both bricks and mortar, you can come to the clinic, or virtual care, telehealth. But the very powerful thing is that, number one, we have the medical record. And so when someone provides telehealth without a medical record, some portion of the time, they're not providing the best care. They might prescribe a cough syrup when someone has high blood pressure because they didn't know they had high blood pressure. Having that medical record is really important to providing that, which ultimately comes down to a relationship where the average person sees their primary care provider one, one and a half times a year. We actually expect to see them four to six times a year because we have actually on that first visit, we are co-developing a wellness plan with them. What's important to them? What are the behavioral barriers they have? What are the stresses they have in their life? And what are their goals? Is it family? Is it work? Is it, it, what's important to them? And with that, we're able to work with them over time to keep them healthy. And since America has changed the way they are reimbursing clinicians for the first time, one, they're now paying for outcomes. They're paying us to keep people healthy. And number two is they're actually paying us for time. In the new reimbursement schedules in 2021, we now have the ability to spend 45 minutes, 60 minutes with a patient on the very first visit. So we can really take the time to get to know a person and help them both today and down the road over the year. You know, you mentioned these uh, bricks and mortar locations and it being an amenity uh, in the building. I noticed that you had an announcement uh, recently about a new location at the Minnesota Vikings uh, training center. How does that, uh, how does that fit in? Yeah, it's a really fascinating development. Uh, the Wilf family, who owns the Minnesota Vikings, recently built a new training facility out in Egan, Minnesota. And in a part of that, there's a hotel out there. Uh, USTA has an operation out there, the Tennis Association. And then they're building 1,500 apartment units out there. 
And um, next door at the next property, there's supposed to be another 1,500 apartment units. So it's also going to it's going to be a little town in and of itself. So we're actually in a strip mall in that section. But the fact is, is we're right there, a part of the community, very easy for folks to walk over and, and come see their clinician. You know, I've been to Minnesota, but I've never went to a Vikings game there. But I had a friend, uh, was an early colleague of mine, and he had worked as a vendor there. And one time we went to a restaurant here in Massachusetts. This has nothing to do with primary care. I could say maybe this is the way not to do uh, health prevention. And uh, they give you a, a little a cone and you could fill your own cup with the frozen yogurt. And he says, let me do it. And he took it. And he swirled it and it was like a foot high. I couldn't believe it. It was embarrassing, um, but he was able to do that. So that's, that's what I hold out from the, uh, from the Vikings. So I, hope I hope your facility is, is more healthful than that one. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, everything in moderation. So you do have to uh, <laughs> indulge every once in a while. You have to feed the mind and the soul. So, Larry, it sounds like a really interesting uh, business that you're you're building a lot of reasons to see that why you could actually make progress, uh, which has been tough to come by in in American healthcare. What sort of investors do you attract to help you to realize this vision? Because there's some capital intensity, it sounds like, to what you're what you're doing. Who do you work with? Yeah, so you know, Metesco is um, it's kind of unique because we were a public company before we were able to uh, acquire this business. We acquired the business plan from the uh, the folks that had built Minute Clinic. And they took a, a lot of what they had learned there, how to, how to improve that. And so this is unique because investors get to come in at the ground floor of a business like this. Normally this would be buried in a PE firm, a private equity firm, and we would wait until it's much larger before it comes and sees the light of day and investors get to participate. So today about probably over 97% of our, our investors are individuals. But we've been recently bringing in institutions and we're in the process of uplisting from the OTC where we trade today to the NASDAQ exchange. And when that's complete, we'll be able to see a lot more institutions come in and uh, and participate in our growth and our success. So when you compare us, you know, I like to call our peers uh, one One Medical, Oak Street Health, Village MD, who have tremendous unicorn valuations. And so it really is an interesting opportunity folks get in on the ground floor and participate as we grow the business. Now, what do you expect to see uh, in the future from the from the business as you continue to make progress, you, you know, sort of continue to open new centers, innovate the model? You know, what might things look like three to five years down the road? Um, so actually, as we look out for the business, Metesco uh, has has shared publicly that you know we expect to open 50 clinics over the next three years. We're starting in Minnesota. We we have two leases that we've signed in Colorado and are beginning construction in Denver. We expect to open probably 14 out in Denver, and then we'll move on to Arizona and then on to Florida. So those are the four f- first states that we plan on 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 moving with. The other thing is technology is a key element, as I mentioned telehealth before. Um, telehealth and advances there, being able to be there on a just-in-time basis to help solve a patient's needs is is critical to what we're doing. And so we we constantly are looking for technology to integrate into our business and acquire technology that makes sense for both this business and then we can share to other healthcare institutions. Now, we talked before about your earlier career and your career path to Metesco. Uh, one thing I noticed that you've been involved with, I think, currently is the Global Voice for Autism. What, what does that organization do? 
Uh, Global Voice for Autism specifically targets delivering autism support services and therapy, so uh, ABA therapy, to families that are in motion. And that typically is a result of wars. So, um, for instance, in the Syrian situation where the folks left Syria and went to Turkey and went into Jordan, we've been operating programs down there helping families, number one, learn how to better uh, manage their, their kids who are dealing with autism. The other thing we do is we actually train teachers how to mainstream kids with autism into the classroom. So we're specifically when folks in those areas, you know, they're trying to come into a community, very often there's not defined services for folks with autism. And so being able to have the local schools be able to continue the educational process that was previously maybe available in their home country has been critical. And so teaching those teachers how to do that is something that we do as well. Good. Well, that sounds like another uh, place where the uh, Metesco progress uh, would be helpful, even though I realize it's a completely separate operation. Absolutely. Um, the program was fascinating because it was actually, uh, it won the Clinton Global Initiative mm-hmm. is how it got started in its initial funding. The the founder of the organization had applied and uh, the Clinton Global Initiative discovered that it was a, a significant uh, value to, to the globe. And that's why they stepped up and funded it. It's now been operation. I think it's now eight years that they've been doing what they do. Amazing. Um, in the midst of all of what you're working on, have you had time to read any books? And is there anything that you would recommend for our listeners and viewers? You know, I'm a bi- I'm a big fan of the Wall Street Journal and most of the business presses, and that's where I I, I tend to stick. I read, you know, all the internet sources. Um, leisure leisure time is not something that's there. Uh, I do have hobbies, but um, I tend to spend the time there. You know, with yoga, trying to calm the mind and get a little time away. But uh, my focus tends to be uh, the business media. That's good. Well, you know, I think Wall Street Journal is always a good one. When I was uh, way back when I met this uh, Vikings vendor, uh, one of the first people that I worked with said, you know, when you're trying to research something, he says, it always goes first. This is before the Internet, really. Go first and see what the Wall Street Journal wrote about it, because they usually have a high quality article. They've covered it. And that's often the place to start and and what you need. So they have uh, gone through some changes over the years, but uh, I still... uh, I still do that. In any case, uh, Larry Diamond, CEO of Metesco, thank you very much for your time today on the Health Biz Podcast. Excellent. Thank you very much. Have a good day, David. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.